Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival and the Faculty of Advocates event on this rather damp evening, another rather damp evening <laughs> in Charlotte Square. Um, I'm Jamie Jauncey, and uh, my guest is one of the most familiar, and I have to say one of the most civilized presences <laughs> on BBC News Television. Um, former Washington correspondent, um, chief North American correspondent for the BBC, and now anchor for Newsnight, ladies and gentlemen, Gavin Esler. Gavin, it's very nice to have you here. Um, this is your fourth novel, A Scandalous Man. Um, and it tells the story of uh, one of the coming men of Thatcher's government, doesn't it? He's, uh, he's, um, he's tipped as even as a possible successor to her. And we, we, we learn of his, his life through the sort of early stirrings of Tory sleaze, through um, the relationship with Washington, and particularly the way it affects um, events in the Middle East. Um, and um, then through 9-11 and culminating in the, the London bombings of, of 2005. I mean, on one level, it is a thriller. It's a story of power and intrigue, of corruption and infidelity. Uh, but on, a, on another level, it's something else, and we'll maybe come to that later on. Um, what, what, what sort of drew you to this particular topic? I think there were, there were two inspirations for this. One's quite easy to explain, and the other one uh, takes a little bit more time. The easy bit was I wanted to write a novel of a relationship between a father and son who span two, two generations. Most of it is actually set in 2005 in the lead up to the London bombings, the, the period between the 2005 general election and the London bombings. And the son hates his father, absolutely detests him because he was embroiled in a, in a, a scandal which he found shameful. And when his father is found close to death on the day that Tony Blair calls the 2005 election. The son uh, thinks, that's ah, typical. You know, he, he, he's trying to upstage Blair. You know? <laughs> typical politician's timing. And then he thinks, I hope he really suffers before he dies. And then he gets a phone call from the police saying, could we meet at your father's house in Hampstead? And the one thing the son knows is the father does not have a house in Hampstead because he doesn't have a lot of money. He goes to the house, and in the house, he starts thinking of the his father's past and uncovering not the sex scandal, which in some ways is completely irrelevant, but the real scandal of his, of his father's life. And that, that, for me, was the kicking off point. The other part uh, is, is really about where, why, I would sum it up by saying why we're in such a mess at the moment. Mm -hmm. I mean, what has happened to our country in the past 30 years in terms of uh, terrorism on our streets, being involved in foreign wars in places that most of us couldn't have drawn on on maps before, and why are we there? And that's the other thing that really fascinated me and made me write the book. Well, there's a very, very strong sort of political narrative throughout the book. And if you don't know much about the events Gavin's talking about, it's, 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 a, it's a great learning experience, this book, <laughs> as well as a very enjoyable read. 1979 is the pivotal year, isn't it? Maybe tell us a little bit about that. Yes. Um, I, I think uh, 1979 is perhaps the most important year since World War II because of the events which happened in that year. The, the one that most of us remember is Mrs. Thatcher being elected, but I, I don't actually mean that, although that's part of the story. What I mean is that in January 1979, the Shah of Iran was overthrown, and uh, the Islamic Revolution came to power in Iran. And for 30 years, Britain, America, France, Germany have found it impossible to know what to do about Iran. And sometimes we have backed Saddam Hussein, and sometimes we have had wars against Saddam Hussein. But for, uh, there have been at least three wars involving Iran or Iraq, or Britain, America, and, uh, uh, and Iraq. And there may even, for all I know, be another war in the region uh, involving Iran. For 30 years, that relationship has, has blighted our politics, it seems to me. It's, it's partly to do with the, the price of oil. It's partly to do with playing the great political game. The other thing that happened in that year was the Afghan revolution, uh, the Afghan invasion, when the Soviet Union sent their tanks into Afghanistan. And of course, we now have British soldiers, American soldiers, and others fighting and dying in Afghanistan. So I see 1979 as, as a, a, a sort of hinge of history year, where things really, really did change in ways that we didn't understand at the time and we didn't react to very well. 
And after 30 years, we are still fighting wars in the region because of those events. And my guess is, rather sadly, another 20 or 30 years, we may still have troops in many of these countries because we haven't quite digested the events of 1979. And, and is that to some extent because Iran is particularly clever and we're particularly stupid, or? <laughs> no, I, I, I think, well, um, for many years, uh, the United States practiced a policy of, that was called dual containment, which meant we don't like the Iranians, we don't like the Iraqis, we're gonna contain both of them. And it was a completely failed policy. And it meant that we were supposedly spectators when Iran and Iraq were fighting a war. And the fact is that, that, rather cynically, there were those policymakers who thought, well, as long as the two people we don't like continue to kill each other, it's none of our business, as long as the oil keeps coming out. But it became our business. Mm. And there were a lot of Western dealings with Iraq in particular. It was most bizarre period because uh, Saddam Hussein, who became the great bogeyman, was supported by many of the Arab states who saw him as keeping back the terrible Iranians. And there were trade deals going on and there were all kinds of weapons shipments to Iraq. At the same time, from uh, in the 1980s, the Americans were also covertly sending weapons to Iran. <laughs> so you were backing both horses in a race, but it wasn't a race, it was a war in which kids were being killed, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids being killed, conscripts in the Iranian side, they sent some of them to go marching to the Iraqi positions without guns, knowing that the chap in front would fall and I could pick up your gun and then I'd be killed. It was a terrible, terrible war, and we did nothing much about it except secretly encourage it. Well, I mean, there are two, there are two points in the book in which the main character becomes seriously compromised. And the first of them is over precisely this, this, these covert dealings with, with Iraq, aren't they? Yes. I mean, he... Um, There's a very sinister um, and ruthless American at the time, at, the, at that point in the book, he's the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, and he eventually becomes the defense secretary, I think, doesn't he? Yes. A neocon. He's, he, he, in fact, the first, the first time I heard the word neoconservative was about this period when I was traveling to the United States. And I, I, my reaction was pretty much the same as the character in the book who says, neoconservative, is that like is that some Jurassic conservative? I mean, what, how many conservatives are there? Uh, he'd never heard the phrase neoconservative, neither had I. And I remember the person who mentioned the phrase explaining to me what it meant and who these people were. And, and they were a very interesting political group who were nowhere near the levers of power. So I took... Um, many of the experiences that I had in Washington and elsewhere, some of the factual stuff from the Scott Report and uh, um, the political diaries of people at the time, and I made up a work of fiction. But underpinning it is a lot of the things that we were up to in that period. I mean, the particular incident here, and I don't think I'm giving anything away by telling, speaking about this, is, is the a shipment of chemicals to, to, to Saddam, isn't it? Uh, and our man is lent on, basically. Our man to, is lent on to authorize to it. To authorize and it. And they are precursor chemicals for chemical weapons. And in themselves, there's no particular reason not to export them. But you yeah. put them all together, and they could only have one meaning. And it's true that a lot of Western companies and a lot of Western countries knew this was going on. And I also remember, uh, in this period, having lunch with a, a, a veteran BBC Middle East correspondent when we finally got we, we first got news that Saddam Hussein had used poison gas on the battlefield. And he also used it, obviously, against his own, own people. And my, my friend, who was much older than me, much wiser than me, said, you know, we will really regret the day that we don't shout from the rooftops that this is wrong, mm -hmm. that Hitler on the battlefield never used poison gas for, for, for various reasons, including the fact he thought we would retaliate. But even Hitler didn't use poison gas on the battlefield. It's a particularly nasty weapon. Saddam Hussein is using it, and we are saying, oh, well, it's the Iran-Iraq war. What, what do you expect? And he was right about that, actually. Uh, there, was, there was a barrier that was crossed in terms of weapons of mass destruction. Fast forward to 2003 and all the great fuss that was made and the, the reasons for, for, for the Iraq war then involving weapons of mass destruction, but no fuss was made when he was simply killing Iranians, mm. uh, which is, uh, is quite extraordinary when you think of it. I mean, this was in the early 80s. Um, what, what, how does your own career intersect with the, with the, 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 the path of this story? Um, 
Well, a, a couple of the parties that I, I refer to in the book, I went to those parties. <laughs> um, there is no scandalous man. Uh, sadly, there was no one model uh, for it, but I have met a lot of politicians. Uh, so I took a bit from one and a bit from another and stirred it all up. And, uh, so, but there is no one, one person I had, ha had in mind. But, um, and also one of the things, so more seriously, I have met a lot of politicians. I've met you know, presidents of the United States, prime ministers of this country, and other, uh, other people. And I can't think of any that I would think of as in any way evil. I can't think of any that I think did not go into politics, partly because they really did think they would make their country better. But something happens in power. I'm not quite clear what that is. I'm thinking of exploring it in my next book, actually, but uh, which m makes otherwise decent people slightly delusional. Mm. They cut corners. They do it for a good reason, because it's perhaps good for my career, or perhaps because it's good for my country, or perhaps it's both. But they do things that they know are wrong. They know in their heart are wrong. But they do them when they're in power because they think it gets the job done. And that's one of the reasons we get into such trouble. You, you, I think actually you coin a phrase in this book for that state, or maybe it's someone else's, but I hadn't heard it before, which is meta-rational. He, I, I the, the character Robin goes through sort of phases of feeling that he is being meta-rational. Is that what you're describing here? Yes, I mean, it's a, it's a funny word out of context, but I think, you know, um, most politicians, most political leaders think they're being very, very rational. They, they're, they're planning things and, you know, if I cut tax here and I can spend a bit more there, everything is done for a good reason which they explain to the voters. But Robin thinks he's being beyond that. He's somehow got this, you know, if I really do this, it will make such a difference and it'll be such a good thing. And by the way, I'll become prime minister. And he can see that just there, but doesn't quite get there. And I mean, he's, he, he's compromised um, initially because of a relationship, isn't he? I mean, the, the pressure is put up on him because of a, a relationship that he's trying to keep quiet. Well, what, one of the many ironies, of, uh, uh, one of the ironies of the book is he, he, he becomes a scandalous man because, because he has sex with someone uh, that he shouldn't be having sex with. Uh, and not only is that not the real scandal, it's not even the real love affair, because he, has, he also has uh, part of the reasons why he gets involved in the, in, in the scandal which exposes him, is he's heartbroken. He has had this very, very strong love affair with a woman who's an Iranian exile, an Iranian-American. Uh, and there were quite a lot of people of that period who came out after 1979, settled in Britain, France, and the United States mostly, and have done very well for themselves. Very, very sort of uh, strong community, intellectually strong community, very sound business community. He falls in love with this woman, she leaves him for various reasons, and he becomes heartbroken. So the scandal is uh, of the scandalous man that the newspapers pick up on is completely irrelevant mm -hmm. to him and to most of, most of the voters. And it's what, one of the points that I'm trying to, trying to make in the book is that so much of what we read, particularly in newspapers, about um, supposed scandals are actually really I mean, they may be gossipy, and we might have some fun talking about it, but they're completely irrelevant to the kinds of uh, important things in life. And that was, although it doesn't feature in the book, partly a response to the Clinton-Lewinsky yes. affair, which I spent two, <laughs> two years of my life following this, thinking, why? <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, I mean, gossipy they may be, um, but they do destroy lives, and the, 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 um, the, the girl who, who he is found out being with, who's really of no consequence at all, and isn't even as the papers describe her, is devastated. His career is ruined. Uh, and it is, I mean, it I very much read to me as an indictment of the, of the, of the tabloid press, this, this section of the book. I well, mean, you're a member of the press yourself. Uh, I, you dropped the word tabloid at that bit, thank goodness. Yes, uh, I did. Yes, I mean, I, 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 <clears throat> I do think that there's something um, broken in our culture as well as the society. In fact, I, 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 actually, maybe I should, should read one short bit. Yes, may, do. May, I, may I do this? Do. Um, uh, towards, towards the end of the book, uh, my, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, my uh, central character some pretty terrible things happen to him. And he, he, he wants his revenge, and he's starting to get angrier and angrier at this ridiculous uh, journalist who's, who's exposed uh, a completely irrelevant part of his life. And his, he, he decides to write a book about it, and his agent sends him 
something from uh, George Orwell and uh, 1984. And uh, it really strikes a chord with him. This is what he says. It, um, uh, Zumrut, by the way, is, one of the characters in the book is, is a beautiful young Turkish woman who is in love with his son. And so my hero says, curiously, thankfully, wonderfully, as Zumrut kept telling me, our British democracy has proved resistant to totalitarianism of the type that Orwell saw in 1984. But my agent forced on me an overlooked passage about our newspapers and popular culture. Quote, and the records department, Winston Smith says, after all, was itself only a single branch of the Ministry of Truth, whose primary job was not to reconstruct the past, but to supply the citizens of Oceania with newspapers, films, textbooks, telescreen programs, plays, novels. Here we produced rubbishy newspapers containing almost nothing except sport, crime, and astrology, sensational five-cent novelettes, films oozing with sex, and sentimental songs which were composed entirely by mechanical means. <laughs> and I, when I read, I actually read that because my daughter was rereading it for her, her exams, and I hadn't reread it since I was 16, and I thought, do you know, Orwell got the politics completely wrong, but he did get, he did get our culture quite right, don't you think? I was very intrigued by the fact that you actually give the very last word of the book to the reptile from the news of the world, don't you? Um. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, when he, does get, he, does, he does get uh, the journalist uh, a couple of rather nasty things before the journalist, which I won't tell you about, but at the, at the very, uh, you'll just have to enjoy it. Trust me, you will yeah, enjoy that yeah. bit. bit you, of, you will. You, you will. really will enjoy yes. that bit. Uh, but at the very end, he gets the last word. And... Um, the, the copy reader for the publishers said to me, look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry, but you seem to have got this wrong. At the end of the book, you've got the journalist saying that the, the hero is 60 years old, and then 64 years old, and then 65 years old. He's got it wrong three times in the one paragraph. It can't all be right. I said, no, no, I mean it to be like that. <laughs> so it's also, I mean, apart from being an extremely gripping story and a very fascinating story about all the, the behind-the-scenes dealings and, and these events that have led up, as you say, to the mess we're in now, it is also a story about a father and son. And when we were talking before, you drew the analogy, which you said was deliberate in the book, between Thatcher and Blair. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, in, in a way, you know, some people say that uh, Tony Blair was the, was the son of Thatcher, and in a way, he was, and he would admit, uh, he would acknowledge politically that he was. And so... Uh, what I have is, is uh, the, the, the central figure, Robin Burnett, worked for Mrs. Thatcher, was a very, very bright government minister, part of the economic revolution that she brought about. His son, uh, when, when the, the scandal broke, not only didn't want to see his father again, didn't want to talk to his father, he decided that he wanted to have nothing to do with it and certainly wasn't going to be a conservative, so he becomes a Labour Party supporter and works for Tony Blair in, in 2005. And uh, the, there is one... Part of the book is the difference between, I suppose, real life and politics. And there is one part in the book which I, I really particularly enjoyed writing, which is, is the son is in bed with his girlfriend and they're making love and the beeper goes off. And he gets a beeper because he was a new labor apparatchik and he uh, had to uh, be on call all the time. And he, he's with the woman that he says he loves, but he stops being in bed with her to get up to answer the beeper and he reads on the beeper, and he goes, yes! And she is really angry with him, says, yes, what? He goes, Cherie's pregnant, we're going to win the election. It's a great, it's a great moment. <laughs> and it's not because they're evil people, it's just hmm. because sometimes they don't see what real life is about, it seems to me. Um, there are always exceptions to this, but people who write father-son stories very often have a reason to do so. Do you have a reason to write a father-son story? Uh, well, I have a father and I have a son. So, uh, yes. you know, actually, one of, the, one of the journalists, not on that paper, but another paper, when he said, uh, I haven't read your book, what it's about. I said, it's a father-son story. He said, how do you get on with your father? I said, actually, I get on really well with my dad. How do you get on with your son? I get on really well with my son. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And that's true. Yes. <laughs> so just tell us, tell us a little bit about the, the role that the son plays as the, as the, the story unfolds. Uh, right. Well, well the, son, the son is our real point of contact. He is the, he is the young man in 2005 who's, who's, who's trying to make a way, uh, uh, in, make his way in life. And he's a rather disillusioned, 
political person. He wants to get involved. He really, like a lot of young people, he wants to change this country for the better. He wants to do the right thing. But he's been a bit disappointed uh, with, uh, with Tony Blair, and he's very, very disappointed with his father. And one of the things he does, because he's, he's a linguist, he makes, his, he makes his living as a translator and a linguist, and this is actually one, one of the big points in the book. One of the things he decides to do is he thinks he will actually learn Arabic. And I've, I've got quite a lot of Arab friends, and I know of, uh, there is an Arabic class uh, school that uh, uh, does Arabic classes quite near me. And I know a few people who've, who've learned Arabic. I have no great gift for languages, unfortunately. I'd, I'd quite like to learn to speak Arabic. Um, but those who have been, and, and my, uh, my hero, uh, Harry Burnett, goes to, uh, to Arabic classes, find this extraordinary range of people who want to learn the language. There are some people who want to learn it for religious reasons, because they want to go on the Hajj, or they want to read the Quran better. There are others who want to read it for, learn it for cultural reasons. He wants to make money out of it, actually. He, want, he thinks it would be good for his business. Uh, there's a Turkish woman uh, whom he eventually falls in love with, who, who wants to do it for cultural reasons because she's writing a history of, of the Ottoman Empire. And I, I just wanted uh, also in the book, because, because it does lead up to the terrible events of, um, of July 2005 and the London bombings, to give some idea of the vast differences in people who you could call and are sometimes called the Muslim community in Britain. But Muslims come in all shapes and sizes, as do Presbyterians and Jewish people and Catholics and, and, and so on. And I wanted to give some sense through him of this fascination with this Turkish woman who's not interested in God, very secular, uh, one of the uh, Pakistani guys who's quite interested but in a very distant way, and two rather more shady characters who are uh, very strongly Islamist in their, their feelings and are quite intolerant. So I wanted to give a, through him a sense of this very diverse community or communities that we have in Britain. And in fact, I mean, we get inside these characters' heads through them. I mean, you introduce them as their, as, as their own voices in a way in the book, which is not sort of necessarily a very conventional thriller writing technique, but it's really nice. It's extra, extra colour. I, I wanted to, um, uh, exactly, I wanted to tell this book mostly from two points of view, father and son, mm. but I wanted other people to have voices as well. Uh, and uh, quite a few of the, the characters with the Muslim background do that. They give us their perspective on events, which is quite yes. different from the others. Yes, yes. I mean, you, you, you have a rather charming dedication at the front of the book, which is to your friends from... Uh, yes, I, I, I'm 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 I, I, took a long, I think I took longer to write the dedication <laughs> than I did the book. It says, this book is dedicated <laughs> to my friends from Iran, Turkey, and the Arab world, India, and Pakistan, whose friendship and love, love inspires me. And, that is true. I, I wrote, um, I have got a lot of friends from uh, that part of the world, and I wrote to about a dozen of them, and I said, uh, who I showed the book to, particularly a couple of Arab friends, because there's a little bit of Arabic in it, and I thought I'd probably get it wrong and say something really embarrassing. And I wrote to a few of them and said, I'm thinking of saying, uh, I want to dedicate this to my friends from the, from the Muslim world or something, or to my Muslim friends. And a couple of them wrote back and said, is that how you see it? And I said, well, what do you mean? <laughs> Suddenly starting to get embarrassed. Well, no, you're, you're, I, you know, I've known you for 20 years, and you're, you happen to be Syrian and uh, whatever. Well, you know, I'm not your Muslim friend, am I? I'm your friend who happens to be of a Muslim background, or I'm your friend who would be a Muslim if I was really much of a believer, but I'm not. Or, and, and two or three of them objected in a very principled way, which is why it's a rather convoluted uh, dedication. Uh, they all got the point. They weren't being hostile. Mm -hmm. but, but Yes. I think they were quite rightly being sensitive that there is a, an ability of the press to pigeonhole people. Yes. And since the whole book's about not pigeonholing people, I just did it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> it was a bit stupid. And, and curiously, I mean, you were saying before we came on, uh, you, you, you were, you were um, presenting Newsnight on the night of the 7th of July 2005, weren't yes. you? Yes. And um, well, that was, uh, that was horrible. I mean, I, uh, a lot of my earlier career was spent in Northern Ireland, and I... I've seen uh, bombs go off. I've seen, I've, I've been in places where uh, people th threw grenades and shot people before the police got there, and it was just, just, just awful. But uh, there was something absolutely despicable about the events of uh, the 7th of July. Um, you know, indiscriminate bombing of civilians on trains at 9 o'clock in the morning in more or less the rush hour in London, where you killed the background of the people who were killed, they just looked like all of us, really. There mm. were Christians and non-Christians and Sikhs and Jews and Muslims, and, you know, it was 50, 
something people who were murdered by these four bombers for nothing, it, it, it seemed to me. And, and I, I found it very, very dispiriting and uh, terribly, terribly difficult. Day. I, I met subsequently quite a few of the victims' families who uh, I'm not sure now if they've managed to the way you do with all grief, process it and, 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 and so on. But it was very, very difficult to answer the question, why? What, mm. what, what on earth mm. was this about? Uh, in Northern Ireland, the killings on both sides, even though they were horrible and there was some terrible suffering, there, there was a political point, even if the methods were completely abhorrent. And there was a political point you could talk to people about and negotiate about. This was not that. This was just a, a loathing of society and culture. Uh, and it's been, I've seen in, in quite a few of the subsequent trials of different bomb plots, if you read some of the things that the plotters say, uh, things like, oh, we're going to blow up uh, such and such a nightclub because it's full of slags, uh, because that's how they see some women in our society. Uh, there is nothing you can say. There is no dialogue, it seems to me, that you can engage in which can uh, address the underlying problem there. You can do it with individuals and try and stop them being disaffected, but the, there's no negotiation. People, women who go to nightclubs are allowed to go to nightclubs. Men who drink too much beer may be stupid, but you know that's, that's allowable in our society. There's not a negotiation about that. Slight digression from the book, but I mean, just as professional question, what is it like to be broadcasting, presenting a national um, current affairs program on the day that something like, I mean, how do, you, how do you deal with your own personal responses and emotions in that situation? That's, that's very difficult. I was also on, although it wasn't <coughs> Newsnight, I, I was on on the night of uh, the September the 11th bombings and presented uh, some of the news programs that night on BBC One and then BBC Two. I can't, I can't honestly remember because I just did my job mm. and it was uh, put on somewhere. Uh, and there is a professionalism which kicks in, which is I have to do my job. And my job is to get as much information from computers and interviewees and guests and uh, what I'm hearing in my earpiece out to the viewer as quickly as possible. Some of which won't be right, actually, because mm. you know mm. some of the things that come in uh, from people in New York on the night were confusing and confused. Uh, but, you know, I think viewers appreciate that. And to say, for example, I'm going to be seeing these pictures for the first time as you are. I have no idea what we're going to see. It mm. could be quite shocking. Yes. yes. Uh, and again, most viewers get that and uh, are quite happy to trust that, knowing that sometimes you'll just fall on your face. You, yeah. the, the, the picture will cut out or whatever. But it, the professionalism cuts in, and it's only afterwards that you begin to think how awful it was. I, I made a, after 9-11, I made a, a, a one-hour documentary, really, uh, uh, that's perhaps the wrong word, for BBC One, of pulling together the pictures of, of that horrible, horrible week. And it was only at that point, which was three or four days later, maybe five days later, that I really, really started to, it started to sink in, because up to that I'd been working working flat out. And the moment it really sank in was when we learned about the United 93, I think it was, the, the, the flight that went down. I think it was United 93. Mm -hmm. the, the flight where the, where the people on board tried to charge into the cockpit and the plane crashed and they all died. The one on the Pentagon? The, the, not oh, the, no, one no, on the, the, the one on the Pentagon, the one on Pennsylvania. Hit. Yes, it was the other and, one. And they, they yes. knew they were going to die and they phoned mm. the people that mattered most to them. And yes. that was the moment yes. it struck me. Because that was the human moment. Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, it, it's a very human book, too, because um, I mean, the, the relationships between the father and the son, their respective partners, um, and uh, a, another sibling who, a couple of other siblings who appear sort of towards the end, um, it's very touching. I mean, it's, it, it, there is, I said at the beginning, there is another level to this book. And, and I found it actually very moving, the, 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 the reconciliation. I, uh, what brings that about? I mean, what's what happens in the plot at that at that well, point? <laughs> we just have to shout. I was going to say, I dress for Edinburgh in August. <laughs> Where did I go wrong? There's a gentleman in the front with an anorak. I might borrow before. What uh, is going on here? Yeah. Um, We've got a small canoe parked <laughs> outside. I'm going to play with the ducks outside. <laughs> if, can anybody hear me at the back? 
Are you okay? You can hear? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll soldier manfully on anyway. And if you can't raise hear our a voices shout out. a bit. Um, it, is, it, is, it is a redemptive book uh, in, in a way that um, my scandalous man uh, rather finds himself in adversity. Uh, he, he, um, he actually is a decent chap. He, he cut some serious corners. He did some things that he feels very guilty about, but he does feel guilty about them. He served his penance. Bad things happened to him. He, he doesn't go to jail or anything, but he's had a tough time. And uh, I also wanted to write a book in which somebody who almost had the top job in their grasp, who almost became prime minister, could see that that, that wasn't everything in his life, that he could do something else in the end. And there are quite a few politicians who are better as ex-politicians than they were as politicians. Once they've given up the notion of power, I'm, I'm sure you can think of names. I couldn't possibly think of any. <laughs> Nelson Mandela, that's one. I, I, he's, he's safe. Uh, he's a long way away. Um, but people who, who give up, actually, the difference between Mandela and Mugabe is very interesting. There's Mandela, who is a world hero. When he dies, we will all mourn. And there's Mugabe, who could have been a hero, who hung on too long and has turned into a monster. And that's so, I mean, there's a great deal of compassion in the book, and you feel that, that you, you, you really have empathy for your, for your characters. But I also feel there's, there's, there's quite a lot of anger, too. And, and I think that maybe it's anger. I mean, it, it all crystallizes around the suicide attempt, which is not giving any way because the book opens with it. Yeah. Um, but, but anger that, that against the people who have manipulated this basically decent man, the press, and also this very, very ruthless American. Yes. Is he, does he, he doesn't really, he's not really He redeemed. doesn't get redeemed, he, doesn't he get gets redeemed. promoted. He gets promoted. <laughs> I can't tell you to what, yes, but he, yes, does, yes. he does get promoted. Well, he's actually, trying I, to get I, upstairs, isn't I he, quite like it? him. It's, uh, I, I should say it's not in any sense an anti-American book. I lived in America for many years. I love America and Americans, uh, and I love the place. And I make, but I make that American figure who's the director of central intelligence. One of the things about him that I like about him is his ruthlessness is absolutely transparent. He doesn't try to cover it up. I think that's one difference between Britain and the United States. Sometimes uh, people, are, uh, people pretend that they're not ambitious in Britain because it's not the done thing. But he doesn't pretend. He's, he's ambitious. There's a marvelous foreign office Mandarin um, who the American hates, doesn't he? And, and the, the, the Mandarin talks in riddles practically, doesn't he? Yes. Uh, I think I, I, I have met that Mandarin. Yes. <laughs> so I'll be careful what I say. He is somebody who seems terribly, terribly wise hmm. until you actually start to think what he says, and it's absolute rubbish. <laughs> but it sounds really good at the time, yes. and you go away thinking about it. Wow, that's very profound. And then you come to the conclusion that it doesn't amount to very much. There's, there's a lot of great insight into the sort of workings of, of, of power in the book. And there's, uh, I was intrigued by one thing, that the Thatcher government, you, you fictionalise all of them except Thatcher, I think, unless I completely misread no, the book. That's, that's, no, you didn't, absolutely. Uh, that, that was, that was Why a, did you do that? Well, that was a bit difficult. I, partly because she's such an amazing figure. And uh, I thought, you can't fictionalise Margaret Thatcher. I couldn't say, call her you know, Mary Thatcher or something and pretend that we had a different prime minister. Mm -hmm. And she is such a dominant figure mm -hmm. and she has mm -hmm. so changed our country and since the, the book is about change since 1979 to now. Uh, so she, she, does, she does actually appear in it. Although I do, I, I do call her the lady quite often, which is uh, the Alan Clark Diaries. He refers to her as the lady. And that was one of my, my, my very enjoyable sources for reading the about the time. The question was more, really, why did you fictionalize the others? Because, I mean, I think ah. it was absolutely right to keep, keep Maggie right. as the lady. Uh, well, the laws of libel. Was anyone in the Craig Murray event earlier on? <laughs> is, is, is the man from Shillings in here? With his <laughs> well, I did do uh, basic law for journalists, and I did know that if they're yes. living, they can sue you. And yes. <laughs> Although none of them, none of them, I don't think, do anything particularly. No, I, I, but there is, I mean, just just because it really made me laugh, and it may be a chestnut, but I hadn't come across it before. The the um, remark uh, Maggie makes about um, Galtieri, the carrot and the stick. The carrot and the stick. Well, is, actually, is it, is it well? Is it is it in the it's public not, domain? She, did, she didn't make that remark. But it's a great it's um, a great line. Uh, Let's I, have it. I, I said I. Um, <clears throat> 
I had uh, Mrs. Thatcher, and I hope she'll forgive me, I thought it was a good line. I'd have written it for her if I'd been a speechwriter, saying that uh, with General Galtieri in the Falklands, it's a carrot and a stick policy. And one of the dimmer members of her cabinet said, carrot and a stick policy, Prime Minister, I don't understand. Well, she said, the carrot is we won't use the stick. <laughs> Actually, uh, to my knowledge, she did not say that, but she should have said it, don't you think? We, we, we leave Robin sort of at the, at the very end contemplating his memoirs, and he's sort of rediscovered his idealism, hasn't he? Uh, do political memoirs change? I mean, he's planning to write a memoir. It's with the publishers as we yes. sort of as and he walks off the page. And it's called a scandalous man. It is called a scandalous man. Do they are they influential political memoirs? I don't. I I don't really think so. I mean, they're. Um, uh, the trouble with most political memoirs is they seem to take up vast rainforests to make them, and then they all get pulped because they're actually quite dull. Uh, Alan Clark is, a, is an exception. He's a great writer. Uh, his memoirs are, are, are absolutely riveting. Um, actually, Barack Obama, no, they're not memoirs, his books, he can write. He's one of the few politicians also I've, uh, I've read who can write. I don't think memoirs really uh, change things, uh, but they do offer insights. And one of the things I love about this country is that although people do keep secrets, stuff gets out eventually. We do find out what they were up to, and then we all have a big laugh, don't we? <laughs> well, I think that's a very good point at which to bring up the lights and um, hand over the questioning to you, ladies. My goodness, there are a lot of you. Oh, dear. Um, so now we have trained runners with microphones. I'm sure you are familiar with this. Uh, so if you'd like to put a few hands up, and then we can start deciding where we're going to send the runners. There's a gentleman up at the back there. <clears throat> this is not about the book. It's about your uh, role in the, in the news media. Um, don't, don't you think, in a way, that our news media, probably yourself as well, are complicit in the idea that one dead American or one dead Westerner is of greater importance than uh, endless dead people of another sort. I mean, you people like Tony Blair are uh, filmed weeping at the Twin Towers, but you don't see him weeping um, at the uh, you know destruction of people in uh, Palestine or the destruction of vast numbers of people bombed elsewhere, and you don't see the media giving it the same sort of compassionate interest. Um, well, I, I, I'd answer that. In, in two ways, I, I think you're, I think you're partly right. I do think you're I do think you're right. I think that uh, uh, that it is true to a certain extent. However, I would say to you that if somebody walked in, if somebody uh, were to be shot tonight, God forbid, in Inverness, or the person next to you were to be shot, you'd be more interested in the person right next to you being shot. That's not being racist. It's just being it's just the way we are. If the woman down the road breaks her leg it's much more interesting than a woman in Cornwall breaking her leg. Uh, there is something in, in what you say, although I think looking at the coverage of, uh, of the Middle East, of uh, the last war in Lebanon, for example, I don't think you could say it lacked compassion for the people who were being blown up on the ground in, in Lebanon. I think it, it is true, though, that we do, and it's not just true of journalists or politicians, it's true of all of us, we do tend to think in terms of of circles. We tend to think of those we love, our family, our neighbors, our street, our town, our city, and so on. And things that are further and further away tend to get less coverage, and it's, that is a basic human instinct. I do think, however, part of the point of the book is that the Iranians and the Iraqis who were killing each other in the 1980s set the tone for the kind of society that we were prepared to tolerate, including the use of poison gas. And I find that disgusting. Let's have a question. We do have any questions over this side? This is the side for questions, <laughs> clearly. A gentleman next to the last gentleman. Um, perhaps you oh, that's the person the about who might have been that's shot. Exactly. <laughs> oh, no. Perhaps he wants oh, to make I'm sorry. Sure he <clears throat> Uh, we're not in cahoots. I just happen to be sitting next to this gentleman. <laughs> a likely story. A likely deal. <laughs> uh, I, I, I am struck by your conversation of the lack of reference to Israel. And I wonder if you have a view that things perhaps will not improve until there is some questioning 
of attitude towards Israel on the part of the United States principally well, in the West? Well, uh, there's a couple of things. One is uh, Israel does feature in the book a little bit in the sense that uh, I, I was simplifying greatly about uh, the fact that the West, meaning Britain, the United States, and others, were backing both sides in different ways in the Iran-Iraq war while professing neutral. And of course, many of the weapons that went to Iran during the war went through Israel. Uh, it was, was a party to that. It was part of the Iran-Contra affair, which is very, very complicated, and I won't bore you all but with all the details, but it is, it is, working, uh, it is worth looking at, looking at that. I think that, for me, the, uh, as somebody who travels to Israel a lot and to the Middle East a lot and to uh, a lot of Arab countries from Oman to the Gulf to, and also up to non-Arab countries like Turkey, and I've been to Iran, um, I do think it's really sad that throughout my life, in the last year of a presidential term, the President of the United States discovers the Middle East. Uh, and not in the first year of the presidential term when they can actually do something. So we've had President Bush who's been there, we had uh, President Clinton who worked very hard at the end of his term in the Middle East, Jimmy Carter, different, it was different circumstances for different presidents. But there have been a lot of missed opportunities. The famous, um, I, I, I like the quote of uh, Abba Iban, the former foreign minister of Israel, saying that they, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Well, it's not just the Palestinians, actually. It's quite a lot of people. And in the case of the United States, which you raise, in the period of, in 1991, at the end of the Gulf War, uh, where British and American forces stopped when they got the Iraqis out of Kuwait, there was a huge window of opportunity to do something for the wider Middle East. Uh, didn't happen. And that's, that's the sad thing for me. More questions? <laughs> yes, yes. This side a very are all eager asleep. person over this side. This side, yes, they're girding their loins, I can see there. <laughs> I think they're going to be trouble yes. later. Yeah. Um, I'd like to ask you about Afghanistan, because you mentioned Iran and Iraq, but obviously there were 100,000 troops in Afghanistan for 10 years uh, from Russia, and then they were expelled, and they got nowhere. And I wonder what your thoughts are of Afghanistan now, with our meagre 5,000 troops. <laughs> well, I, I, it's an interesting question if uh, you use the word solved and, and, and us. I mean, you know, I tend to think that countries solve their own problems and that other countries can perhaps help, but you can't do it for them and you can't do it for, for anybody. Uh, one, of, one of the things, points I make in the book uh, is that as a result of the Iranian Revolution, uh, the West was encouraged to support Saddam, which was not a great idea. And as a result of the Russians being uh, invading Afghanistan, there was some support through the Pakistani security agency, the ISI, intelligence agency, the ISI, for a, a chap called Osama bin Laden to help throw him out, which was not also one of the better ideas of... Uh, of so, we are embroiled in this whether we like it or not because I, I also sometimes think if you don't do foreign affairs, foreign affairs will come and do you. Um, events in Georgia seem a long way away. I don't think I could spell half the places that these terrible events are unfolding in, but we will get to know it uh, just as we will get to know what's going on in Afghanistan. We have got to know what's going on in Afghanistan. I've got no solution. I'm not, you know, I'm not a politician, uh, but I do think that if we don't uh, attempt to pay some kind of attention and also perhaps not think that the solution that works in Edinburgh or London or Washington or Texas is absolutely the solution that's going to work in Helmand province. It does seem to me to be a, a rather arrogant view that we have got the light and we just need to shine it in these dark corners of the world and they will uh, somehow live better lives. Yes, at last, they're waking up over here. <laughs> we have two. He broke into a run there because of that. <laughs> Could we have somebody over there so he has to run over there? That would be really good. Yes, you've mentioned some of your uh, political heroes. I wonder if you've got any other political heroes in either Ireland, America or the UK. Uh, I've, I've not got a lot of uh, political heroes, although I have got a lot of time for politicians. I do think that they do quite a hard job, and I do think most of them are honest. And I do think that uh, in... I mean... To, to, to back up for a second, I've, I, I better be careful what I say here, but I've got, I've got a friend who's a family of, an, of, a, of a, quite a senior American politician. 
And when he was running for, for a particular office, he said to me uh, his game plan was to raise $50,000 a week every week for two years to fight his, his campaign. This was about 10 years ago. And I said, you couldn't rob banks quickly enough to do that. How would you do it? Oh, he said, people give it to me because they support my point of view. Then I looked at his donors. I looked at his opponent's donors. They were the same people. They were, <laughs> they were giving money to both of them. And so I'm quite pleased that we do get a bit exasperated about politicians that buy you know, flower pots and what, uh, you know, the, the John Lewis list and so on. And quite rightly, uh, you know, it's, in the end, it's our money. We pay for it, and uh, they should be accountable. And if there's a reason for them buying flower pots, fine. I don't, but compared to the United States, the sums of money are blessedly small. So while I don't think I've got a huge number of heroes, I do think that a bit of respect for politicians sometimes might not be misplaced. But the moment soon passes. <laughs> That was rather a politician's answer. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm trying to think of ones. ones I, I can think of lots that I find very entertaining. And uh, all, 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 all journalists are biased in favor of a good story. So, uh, for instance, I loved following Bill Clinton around because you never knew what was, what was going to happen. And I should say, uh, this is a bit of a digression too, but it, he, he was always a good story. But the first time I came in contact with, with him was in 1991. And I was, I was making a, George Bush Sr. was at the height of his popularity, 90% approval in opinion polls. And I suggested to the BBC, uh, I would make a film about whoever the Democrat candidate would be. And we didn't have a title for it, but my, my subtitle was, what kind of idiot would run against George Bush because he's bound to lose? And um, following some of the Democrats, uh, one of the Democratic operatives said to me, well, what, is there anybody you think is any good? And I said, Clinton's an amazing speaker. He's fantastic. And the guy goes, oh, you mean governor zipper problem. <laughs> and, and that, and I, excuse me? And, and that was in 1991. So when it came to all those investigations of uh, President Clinton somewhat later, I did think I kind of knew <laughs> what the plot was going to be. There was another question in the immediate vicinity. There we go. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to ask you why it was that you chose the novel form to explore political ideas when you, you could have dealt with it in a, in a factual sense. And related to that, are there any uh, writers of fiction specifically that have inspired you to do that? Ah, yes. I mean, uh, 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 there's a couple of reasons for that. One is, one is I wanted people to read it, <laughs> honestly. Uh, you know. It, here's a book about 1979 in the past 30 years and it's all nonfiction. Uh, might not have sold. I, th I think it is entertaining. It, I think it touches people. I wanted to be people also to see the human cost of some of these activities. Real people that you become, I won't say who, but you become attached to people who come, who, who, who are killed uh, in, in the book. And I think we should feel that empathy, and I couldn't do that in non-fiction non in the way that, that I wanted. Uh, there, are, there are a few, uh, there are quite a few French writers, actually, who, uh, t uh, that, though the book is nothing, is nothing like uh, Camus or, uh, or, Sartre, or whatever, Sartre or whatever, but they, they touch on political events in fiction. Uh, Malraux is another one, uh, Kersler. Uh, and they do so because they make you understand the human bit. And without the human bit, there's no point. That's why I had the, it's not an entirely gratuitous sex scene between the, between the guy and his girl and it gets interrupted by the beeper because he misses the human bit. There's a human in bed with him in a moment of great intimacy and he'd rather get up and do the political thing. And I, and I just wanted to make that point over and over again in, in different ways. I hope I, hope I made it. Yes, question right in the front here. We've got time for maybe two more. No, just a uh, gentleman here um, with a stick. There we go. <laughs> you you Overshot. mentioned things that politicians did in power. Can you give me, could you believe that George Bush would have um, authorized rendition when he was elected? Uh, I don't know if he... I don't know if even he would have known if he would authorize rendition. I mean, I think 
Night, September the 11th had a, had a catastrophic effect, obviously, on the United States and changed their, their policies. And it made people decide to do some things that were, um, presumably, they thought were for the best. But on reflection, they realized that they were very, very bad for America's image. I mean, the question of Guantanamo Bay itself, uh, whether it's McCain or it's Obama, uh, you know, I think Guantanamo Bay is on its last leg. Something will happen there because it's been a propaganda disaster for the United States. And I think those of us who, in this country, who for 30 years went through Northern Ireland and that experience know that you can kill or capture one terrorist, but if you're creating 100 others, then you're going to lose, whereas what you've got to do is a very complicated and sophisticated thing. And also, part of it was, was that the people of Northern Ireland just became fed up with it. Uh, but you have to be sophisticated, I think. And, and some of the people within the Bush administration got it. Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld, said there was a very famous memo from October 2004, I think it was, where he said, it's difficult to know what, what metric there is, typical sort of Rumsfeld phrase, but how, what measurement there is for knowing how well we're doing. And that's exactly the point. How do you know how well you're doing when you're really making a lot of people angry and you're only arresting or uh, you know, sending off to foreign countries very few people? Uh, last question here on the end, and if you could make it short, sir, we're running out of time. Um, Gavin, as you spent so much time in the United States, can you just explain briefly why did Hillary lose, and what does Barack Obama have to do to win? Ah, right. <laughs> so, another hour here. Um, <laughs> why did Hillary lose? I, th I think very briefly, if she'd fought the campaign at the beginning that she fought at the end, she would have won. I think that's one thing. Two is uh, the system the Democrats use is a bit daft. If she, they'd use the system that the Republicans use, she, she probably would have won. As to what Barack Obama has to do um, to win, yeah, I think he's got problems, actually. I think it, right now, despite the fact he's much younger, he's a fantastic speaker and, and obviously a great candidate, I think uh, the fact that they're neck and neck in the polls, I'd be really worried if I were an Obama supporter and not so worried if I were a McCain supporter. Thank well, a, a topical note on which to end. Um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for turning out on this filthy night. Um, Gavin and I are going to make a hasty exit in our canoe, which is waiting just out there. <laughs> We're going to paddle smartly around the corner to the book signing tent, where there will be many books to buy. I can heartily recommend it. It's a, it's, it's, it's a marvellous read, A Scandalous Man. And Gavin, um, a most fascinating and delightful guest. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you.